0: Hello and welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about politics, policy, and your health. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Think for a moment, if you will, about the most confusing, awkward, traumatic period of your life. Then imagine getting up on stage to explain it to a room full of strangers. That's what our guest today, Justin Garut, did. And then, in the middle of telling his story, somebody who didn't want people to hear what he had to say cut off his microphone. Justin was, for the first time in his life, publicly telling the story of his personal journey with sexual orientation and coming out as a gay man when this interruption happened, and then it became an international press story. Justin Garut is here on the pod today to tell you all about it, including his story of growing up as a young gay man in a religious rural setting, the aftermath of the interruption at this event, and about his work today to support the health of LGBTQ youth high school students. Let's get to it. Hi, Justin. Hey. (laughs) Tell me about uh, where you grew up.
1: Yeah, so uh, I grew up in a small town called Antonito in Southern Colorado. It's uh, in the San Luis Valley, so folks may be familiar with Alamosa, um, the biggest town down there with about 10,000 people, and Adams State University. But I grew up in Antonito a town of 800 people. Um, it's predominantly Catholic, uh, Latino or Hispanic. And my mom's side of the family, the Jaramillos and the Archuletas come from that area as well as from Northern New Mexico. Um, yeah, so that was that was my stomping grounds going up. I, I started out at South Caneo schools in Antonito and then moved to North Caneo school district in La Jara and finished up my education there.
0: And are you uh, red gri- uh, red chili or green chili or Christmas?
1: Oh my gosh, it depends on the day. Chila is just great in general. Um, I think the broader question, since I'm living in New Mexico now, is does New Mexico have better chili than Colorado? And
0: I Pueblo versus Hatch, right?
1: Right. I'm going to stay out of that one. I like okay. Chila. I just I just like chila. It's good. Okay. Right.
0: <laughs> um, and so you came on my radar when i read a story um about your experience um in which you revisited the community in which you grew up to uh deliver your personal story uh to a group of uh largely strangers at an event called rural philanthropy days can you, can you can you bring me inside that and and retell that story
1: yeah definitely so um to step back a little bit, I um, like I said, I, I finished up my my high school education there in the valley, and then I went to Colorado College and got my um, undergraduate degree there in the Springs. Um, moved abroad for a little while, and then I decided to come back to the valley. And by the valley, I mean the San Luis Valley um, in 2014. And I got engaged there in Antonito um, with some food justice efforts and environmental justice efforts um, through Cornell's Clean Water, a local nonprofit down there, and eventually became executive director of that organization, got involved with Rural Philanthropy Days. So I, um, you know, was able to to be on the steering committee for it when it was held in CREEDE. and then after a couple of years, I decided to get my master's in public health in Albuquerque and moved down to New Mexico, um, letting go of my position at Cornell's Clean Water. And earlier this spring, so about in April of this year, 2019, um, one of my previous colleagues reached out and said, hey, Real Philanthropy Days is coming up again. We'd love for you to submit your coming out story. We're seeking keynote storytellers rather than a traditional keynote speaker, Um, so I submitted, you know, a coming out story that I had written probably in 2014 while I was in Germany, um, at a Starbucks, just like on a whim, I wanted to write it all down. And I submitted that to the steering committee and, and they came back in June and said, Hey, we'd love to have you as one of our three keynotes. Um, the event's going to be in the fall. And I was so excited, um, quite nervous actually, because it would, it was going to be the first time that I would be. Publicly sharing my coming out story in the valley, Um, not in Antonito, it was in Del Norte, but still in the valley with people I worked with, to some extent, and strangers, as you said. Um, And interestingly enough, in May of this year, my coming out story was performed on stage in Berlin by a high school group of students um, so I was able to, to go to Germany to see it performed there but again it wasn't me telling my story which was a little bit removed and safer. So I you know went to rural philanthropy days. my husband came with me, Ethan Ortega and um, we got to Del Nord and and it was taking place in the Gateway Church with this, which is a Southern Baptist Church. So that was um, a little uh, nerve-wracking. Um, but I understand that that Real Foundry Days takes place in these smaller towns, and there are limited venues. So um, I'm familiar with that type of um, yeah setup, I guess.
0: And the people in the and the I was just going to explain for everybody who's not familiar the type of event this is. This brings together grant makers with um, nonprofit organizations and community leaders. Is that right?
1: Yes, yeah, it's right. It's a wonderful opportunity that is funded by, you know, various foundations in Colorado and organized by the Community Resource Center um, to really increase access for rural nonprofits and community members to funders and, you know, funding that that is necessary for the important work being done on the community level. So, yeah, yeah. Um, Got in there and and uh, you know was was introduced and and brought up to tell my story. Um, walked up on stage, had a huge cross behind me, and um, the the stand I was using to to speak in front of is in the shape of a cross. And to my left was a baptismal font, um, which reminded me of being baptized multiple times in the valley um, when I was younger. Um, first as a, as a baby in the Catholic Church and then later on in a Baptist church in Monta Vista um, where I went with my father for a little while because I was told that my Catholic baptism didn't count. And and as a young, closeted, gay boy, I, I uh, was doing everything I could to try and save myself and, um, you know, go to heaven because I was being told by by people around me, mostly the the pastor at the Catholic Church in Antinuto that I couldn't act upon these feelings I was having and whatnot. So that baptismal font reminded me of that. And I started sharing my story with people there. About 300 people were in attendance, I'm told. And um, at some point I started speaking about my experience with conversion therapy as a a minor, um, something I enrolled in on my own online without my parents' knowledge. And... um, I also noted the irony of the space in which I was speaking in that day. And at that point, my my mic was cut. Um, at the time, I thought it was just technical difficulties, but then shortly after it was cut, I heard a voice yell, um, you know, watch what you say. And it turns out the pastor of the church was in the sound booth and um, decided to cut my mic and, and say that. Um, and... And people were in the background, organizers of the event were in the background speaking with them, with, with this pastor to try and allow my speech to continue. Um, and so an organizer, a friend of mine, um, got up on stage and grabbed the mic and was like, you know, tapping it and, you know, trying to get it to start working. And it started working again, handed it back to me, and it was cut again immediately and i was still in denial still just assuming it was technical difficulties i was nervous enough just being up on that stage with these people and sharing such a personal story eventually the mic got turned back on and and i was able to to finish my speech the the level the audio level was at a much lower level than when i started um but it was still on and you know i took people through just how it was for me to grow up in the Valley and, and the importance of supporting LGBTQ youth in that region and in rural areas of Colorado and and the States in general. Um, And in terms of conversion therapy, going back to that experience, it's, it's great that governor Polis, um, you know, signed that legislation banning conversion therapy for minors in Colorado this year, Um, New Mexico had done that previously, and a handful of other states have also done that. So that's definitely something that is beneficial, I think, um, because we know it's medically disproven and harmful. But, you know, I, 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 I guess... You know, professionally, I work with with LGBTQ youth and in schools throughout New Mexico and trying to implement strategies that we know improve their health and well-being. And so I spoke to some of that and the work that could be done in the Valley as well in terms of supporting our youth and um, got a standing ovation in the end. and, And really, it was a powerful experience to share that story. You know, I had tears in my eyes. The next speaker was teared up and... Um, I'm grateful to have had that opportunity, and and um, you know, despite what happened with the the mic cutting, and then um, the pre the the following Sunday, the pastor um, did a church cleansing, which was uh, recorded and put out into the public domain. And you know, following the 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 speech, this is really what brought it into the. Um, into the national and international level, um, with the Advocate reporting on it and Pink News and and folks in Australia too. Um, the pastor did a cleansing, um, a prayer cleansing of the church because LGBTQ folks, myself included, um, and allies. I don't know that I don't know how everyone identified who spoke that day, but um, that we shared in that space and that it was um, we shared an unholy message. Um, I know Pastor Greg Schaefer said it was a mockery of God, that I mocked God and that I um that what I shared was what was the words he used? Um just basically inappropriate um for a space like that. And I think it's one thing to, you know, preach within the confines of your own church, but it was the church that recorded it and released it online into the public realm, which then changes the impact, the negative impact that it can have on LGBTQ people and allies around the Valley and beyond. And I think that's where the line was crossed and where people realized, Hey, this isn't right. Um, Let's organize around this and, and and shift the narrative, which is what happened.
0: You mentioned the moment when you realized it wasn't um, a technical difficulty uh, but an intentional cutting off of your mic. And then you mentioned at the end, you got a standing ovation. What about in between when you realized that, <laughs> when you realized that you had been uh, cut off intentionally because of what you were saying and uh, how was the room reacting to you and, and what were you experiencing, you know, in that space between, um, you know, it being clear that the crowd was on your side and, you know, realizing that you were being purposely silenced.
1: Yeah, so that's that's an interesting um, perspective because I honestly did not realize that I had been purposely silenced while I was speaking. It wasn't until my husband and I left the event and were in Alamosa at Starbucks grabbing a coffee that one of the coordinators called me and said, Justin, I need you to know what happened. Oh, and that's when they told me what was behind the scenes and that my mic had been cut. But I wasn't, like I said, I thinking, reflecting back on it, I was in such denial and just assumed that it was a technical difficulty. And I must have buried the watch what you say comment, right? Cause that's, that's very obvious. And I was told afterwards that everyone in the room knew what had happened. So I protected myself to some extent, um, and I think that's probably the only way I got through the rest of the speech was by kind of just going inside of myself and and continuing to tell my story, blocking out everything else. You know, um, I remember looking at people in the audience, some who, who I knew and others who I didn't, and people were very attentive. And um, yeah, it was just emotional, I think. Yes, what happened that blatant act of homophobia and censorship is terrible and needs to not happen to folks. Um, but I think I, I feel like my message and the people there transcended that one act um, in the moment, if that makes any sense at all. It seems mm-hmm, quite mm-hmm. a lot, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know.
0: You mentioned that you grew up in a religious setting in a couple different churches and you received feedback. Uh, when you were growing up from a priest, uh, to, to not act on the uh impulses you had, did you go to confession? What, 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 how, how did that take place?
1: Oh, yeah, I was in confession every week, I that was my space. Um, <laughs> I uh, I was an altar boy in the Catholic Church, I was you know very very religious and that was that was basically and i share that in my coming out story which can be read um i think the colorado trust published uh the whole story um in both english and spanish but i was that was my one source of of comfort i think was the church and knowing that if i was quote unquote good enough, I I could, you know, be saved and and not be condemned to hell. I, I currently don't believe in heaven or hell and I'm not religious. Um but at that time that was what I had and and I only felt close enough to the priest to be able to tell that part of me to them. I was open to no one else, not my parents, not my siblings. Um and so I'd go to confession and you know, be told, you know, pray your Hail Marys and pray your Our Fathers and don't act upon this. And of course, I failed over and over and over again, because it's part of who I am. And it's a beautiful part of who I am. Um, But at the time, I didn't know that. And on my dad's side, my parents are divorced. um, But when I was with my dad, you know, he was not Catholic. So we'd go to Baptist churches, Nazarene churches, Presbyterian churches, Methodist. I've been to so many different denominations. And um, which I think now is actually a nice gift because I have a better perspective of a more whole perspective of different views. And um yeah, it, it was tough. It was tough, but it, it wasn't until I, I was able to leave the valley and, and um was, you know, given a gift. I I was I was a Daniel scholar, um, and was able to get my education at Colorado College and leave the valley and see people who were lgbtq and out and proud and and I, that was the first time that i had received any type of positive message about lgbtq people and i was 19 you know and that's what allowed me to finally come out and tell my story but it was tough growing up in in antonito and you know, not having role models, hearing people talk down about LGBTQ people, not having inclusive health education, um, all of those things.
0: And so you mentioned that you sought out conversion therapy online. How does that work? Did you just Google conversion therapy and follow the links to a place where you thought that you could get help?
1: I I assume that's what I did. Um, we had dial up AOL internet, you know, we got the CD from Walmart and we able mm-hmm. to install it on our little computer and I plugged in, in our, in my mom's kitchen and yeah, it was, I had a mentor and they took me through all these different steps and there was a guaranteed heterosexual outcome um, I, it didn't work. I tried it multiple times and, um, you know, it was all about sexual purity and, you know, living for the Lord and whatnot. And, um, yeah, it, it really surprised me. It surprises me now when I think about it, that that is something that can happen and that kids could enroll in something like that and be traumatized, um, you know, and told that they're not they're not okay as they are. Um, but yeah, it was just online courses and you'd go through different steps and, you know, email back and forth with a mentor. And
0: did you have like homework? Like what, you know, yeah.
1: So I, I had like different, you know, responses I had to give to, to, um, prompts and whatnot and send them back. And then I'd get feedback on those and advice on how to keep going if i had you know relapsed or whatnot and um because it wasn't in person i was spared some of the more physically traumatizing stuff that people have experienced or i've heard people have experienced going through that Mm -hmm. um but still it's it was it probably wasn't ideal to my development as a young queer person
0: and it sounds like your parents were religious too um what was it like coming out to them
1: yeah, so actually my my parents are are I would say they're relatively religious. I think on my mom's side it's definitely a, a culturally grounded um religiousness in catholicism and um I think I was probably more religious and yeah, practicing than than many of them um um during that time, but when I was 19 and did come out to them, you know, to my mom, it was on a trip back from college and and I had a hickey on my neck and um, and my mom asked if it was from a girlfriend and I said no it was from a boyfriend and then you know everything went downhill from there. Uh, uh, it was quite dramatic and and I think um, there were a lot of stereotypes that my mom had in her head about you know what it means to be gay and and um there were automatic assumptions that she made that I would die of AIDS and and just a lot of misinformation that I think she still carried with her. Um, you know, but over time, we we have bonded and we're closer now than, than ever. Um, so I'm really grateful for that. But it took time. Um, and then on my dad's side, uh, it was, I had just gone to um, Pride in Denver. Uh, with my boyfriend at the time and and that was also father's day weekend if anyone goes to pride in denver i think it's usually on father's day um so my dad was in town and you know asked took me out to dinner and asked what i had been doing that weekend and i didn't want to lie and i just said i was at gay pride and um you know i think he really struggled with it too and and was worried about how it would be for me to be out in the valley Mm -hmm. you know i think he said that it would be you know lesbians have an easier time than than gay men, you know, in terms of traditional gender norms and whatnot. and that was his perspective. and he also worried how I would influence my younger step siblings, um unfortunately, and
0: like the gay was contagious,
1: <laughs> possibly yeah, and i my dad has come such a long way. He's a huge advocate for LGBTq students now and and does, That's it, great. does That's great great work, but you know every, it's a learning process for everyone and um. I am grateful that my parents didn't kick me out of the house like some LGBTQ you know youth experience. I would maybe change that some to many, um, since we know that there's a higher prevalence of LGBTQ youth who are homeless than you know than is relational to our existence in the general population, but yeah it took time. it was fine though um I know I was told you know not to tell my grandparents because it would kill them and I eventually did tell them and and most of them were fine with it um, one of my grandparents Gigi is what I call her she's who I'm closest to you know she was like, oh I've known I've known and you know ever <laughs> since then it's been a non-issue and and Ethan is welcomed into the family and it's nice to see how people can grow, but it, but it definitely takes time and education to um, kind of breaking down some of these stereotypes that are unfortunately are still prevalent within society as a whole.
0: So you mentioned that this incident that took place in a church in uh, rural Colorado, kind of in the middle of nowhere, uh, ended up being an international story. What's the aftermath uh, been like for you? What's come of it?
1: Yeah, it, it was a whirlwind there for a couple of weeks, um, just with the different articles coming out and journalists journalists asking for responses. Um, you know, my experience has been different than people who are living in the valley and working in the valley and actively supporting LGBTQ youth there. Um, but I've been in touch with with them, and I know that organizations like SLV Pride, the San Luis Valley Pride group, that put on the first ever Pride March in Alamosa this past August. Um, you know, they're working locally with groups to to ensure that. You know, schools are safer and more supportive of LGBTQ youth. I know folks in Del Norte where this incident occurred, where I shared my story there. I've heard, you know, that they're working to have some type of like rainbow symbol on local businesses to show where safe spaces are. And I've seen that in Seattle um, and other cities. So it's kind of neat to see that type of stuff coming out of it. Um I know the Interfaith uh, an Interfaith Alliance group in the valley put out a message in the local press about supporting LGBTQ youth and and people and um the SLV Pride group has you know put a list of religious institutions who are affirming and accepting of LGBTQ folks because there's also churches who are accepting but not affirming so you're kind of halfway in the door with them um And then, other than that, you know, I've, I have, uh, many people reached out to me and thanked me for sharing my story and opening up the dialogue. Um, I've had to, I still have, you know, ties to the valley. My family's there. And, and, um, it was my dad's birthday recently. And I called a local organization business in Alamosa to buy something for him. And they're like, Is this Justin? (laughs) It got around. It's funny. And like, you know, small towns, It, it got around and, and people have heard it. But I've, I've really, receive positive responses all around and I think that this might be the first time that on a broader level in the Valley conversations on this topic have occurred and I hope that in the long run people see okay like this is part of us it's part of our community these are you know we have LGBTQ folks here they belong and um, that's what I hope kind of comes out of it more broadly. On the international level, the one that surprised me most was the coverage in Australia because they have some religious freedom laws that I understand are being proposed, or I'm not sure exactly where they are in their process, but they use the example of what happened to me at Gateway Church as something that could be to- would be tolerated on a broader level in the public realm should religious liberty laws go into effect in Australia. So, I thought mm-hmm. that was kind of cool because I mean, it, it just, it, it, th- what happened also can happen anywhere on this planet. And we know there's various levels of accepting, acceptance, and support for LGBTQ folks. So, I think all in all, it's good. And um, I, I'm excited to see, you know, some of the tangible actions that happen over time because of, of the whole incident. I think that had nothing happened, had I just shared my story, and my mic had not been cut, had there not been a prayer cleansing of the church afterwards, I don't think people would know about it. I don't think you and I would be having this conversation today. So I'm actually quite Probably grateful not. for the bump in the road that has led to this broader story. I think it's quite nice in the long run.
0: <laughs> and um, tell me more about your work um, when you're not you know, doing interviews like this or sharing stories at Rural Philanthropy Days.
1: Yeah, so I... Uh, I like I said earlier, just got my master's in public health from the University of New Mexico in May, and I've been working on um, on the health of LGBTQ plus folks in New Mexico specifically. Um, I work with a, a nonprofit organization that does does research, and um, the current work I'm doing is is Working with schools here in New Mexico with high schools to try and understand um, what strategies can be used to or how to implement strategies to increase the health and well-being of LGBTQ high schoolers. And um, more specifically, we're really interested in, in lowering suicide rates among LGBTQ high schoolers because they are about, you know, in New Mexico and nationally, they're about four times higher than non-LGBTQ students. Um so, you know, and the, and the strategies are things like having genders and sexualities alliances, you know, formerly known as gay-straight alliances in schools, those supportive groups for students, having inclusive health education that touches on topics that are relevant to LGBTQ youth, ensuring teachers are trained and understand how to use language. I mean, that's that's one of the biggest things I think people are afraid to talk about it because they don't know how to. Um, and connecting students with with health providers in the community who are familiar with their with their lived experiences LGBTQ people. So that's kind of the work I'm doing now. Um, I I'm definitely a community organizer and, and activist. So I'm also involved with policy level work here in New Mexico and nationally um, to ensure that that our community. When I say our, I mean LGBTQ um, is supported through policy as well, because that sets the foundation for what's acceptable and not. And we still have a long way to go. Marriage equality is one thing and it's one tiny piece of the pie. Um, so there's still a lot of work to do. That's what I I do in my spare time.
0: (laughs) And for people who want to be uh, a supportive ally of an LGBTQ high school student, what advice would you have for them?
1: I think that the biggest thing is is getting involved in your local school or school district um, and asking questions of the district, of the administrators, of the teachers, of the school nurse, or the counselors, you know, what's, what's in place to support our students? Do we have designated safe zones where students can go, where teachers have had training on how to support LGBTQ youth? Um, Asking your local health providers in the community, um, do you have an all-gender restroom for students? Do you include sexual orientation and gender identity demographics on your intake forms? Do you ask what pronouns people want to use? Do you have a spot for preferred name? You know, I think asking these questions can serve as a a non-confrontational way to get people in the school systems and in our health systems thinking about what needs to be in place to better support LGBTQ youth? That's what I would say is where you want to start. Um, if you're on the parent, what is it? The parent? There's like a parent organization at school levels. Um, if you're on that, PTA. You know, the PTA, yeah, that's a way to to leverage change. Or you know, asking, going to school board meetings and asking, do you have a policy that clearly lays out guidelines supporting transgender and gender diverse students? Does that exist? There are schools that have that. You can find those online. Um, you know, One Colorado is a great resource in Colorado who who can help guide that process as well. So those are a few tips, I would say. There's so many different avenues, but um, I guess that's where I'll leave it.
0: Well, you've been super generous um, with your time and your story, Justin. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: There you go. You can access the full text of the story that Justin delivered in the valley that day via a link we posted on our website, woodenteeth.com. Just go to this episode and you should see it. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and we'll see you next month.